sabrosura pa ti que everyone, this is Pam, the Café con Pam, the bilingual podcast that features fearless Latinx and people of color that break barriers, change lives, and make this world a better place. Welcome to episode 142 of Café con Pam. Today, we have a conversation with Dr. Rocio Rosales Mesa. Dr. Rocio is a Chicana indigenous woman and mama. She's an intuitive and energy worker and a coach facilitating mental, emotional, and spiritual healing to black indigenous women of color from a decolonial perspective. She is the first generation born on this side of the colonial border. Her parents are quote-quote immigrants, and her family originates from what is known now as Cuautitlan, Jalisco, Mexico. She was raised in Santa Ana and is committed to her community and working towards collective healing and liberation. Dr. Rosio is honored to be used as a vessel for this work by spirit, her guides, and her ancestors. Listeners, I have been counting the days for this interview. We did it a while back. I mean, end of 2019. It's been a minute. And if you don't know Dr. Rocio, you're about to get to know her and, oh my gosh, probably fall in love with her work because she is full of wisdom, full of knowledge, and full of grace. During our time together, we explored her story and the moment she got her spiritual awakening, how something that could have been considered a tragedy led her to begin healing herself. We also talked about being the first one in her family to graduate all the schools and also about existing in this world consuming a plant-based diet. Amongst a lot of things, I mean, we talked a lot about colonialism, decolonial mentality. We talked about why sometimes we feel uncomfortable when it comes to talking about decolonial work and what does that mean. This episode is truly, truly packed with so much wisdom and I won't be here speaking any further. I'll let you get through the interview with Dr. Rocio Rosales Mesa. <laughs> Dr. Rocio, welcome to Café con Pam. ¿Cómo estás? Muy bien, gracias. Thank you for having me. I'm so honored. Thank you. I'm so honored to have a conversation with you about all the things. I'm very uh, excited. I think yes. people are definitely going to benefit from this. Thank you. I'm excited to see. I just kind of make space for what spirit and ancestors want. So we'll see what they want to come through. I know. Okay, let's start with your story. Tell us who you are. What's your heritage? Who's Dr. Rocio? Okay, yeah. So I am I identify as a Chicana. My parents, you know, were born in Mexico. So I am the first generation born here in the U.S. on this side of the colonial border. I grew up like a traditional Mexican Catholic family. Hablábamos español en la casa. You know, it was very traditional. My family is from Jalisco, Mexico. Our town is called is named Cuautitlán, which is the southwest coast close to Colima. And so we would visit there often. My abuelita, my abuelito lived there. Some of my tios, I had primos. And so growing up, it was very, you know, traditional. I grew up working class. And then my parents divorced when I was 10. And so for the majority of my life, I was raised by a single mother. Mm. And I am the oldest of three daughters. And so... El ejemplo. 
Yes, <laughs> I had a lot of that. And because, you know, my mom was a single mom, I had a lot of that responsibility. You know? mm. Que también ella tuvo cuando ella era niña because she was the oldest daughter. So I say oh. like a lot of what I do now, it's learned behavior, but also like it's kind of in my DNA to mm-hmm. like, you know, do healing work, being a caretaker, all of those things. So That's a little bit about what my life was like growing up. And you grew up in California? Yeah, in Santa Ana, which is in Orange County, yes. And you're still there? And I'm still there, yes. <laughs> I cho- You know, I went to graduate school. It was the first time that I left. When I went to college, I still lived at home. And that was a good thing for me. I loved being at home. And I went to UC Irvine for college, which was like 10 minutes from where I lived. Mm-hmm. And then for graduate school, I moved away. And I first started in Illinois, and then I ended up in Missouri. What part of Missouri? Columbia, Missouri. Oh, you went to Mizzou. Mm -hmm. Okay. I went to college in Missouri. Okay, yeah. So that was a huge culture shock. Oh, my gosh. I talk about that all the time because in California, I mean, it's it's funny because quote, quote, winter arrives and it's like coats and boots. And I'm yeah. like, you guys really don't know what real winter is like. You really have to wear coats because there's a reason for coats. Here is more like, because it gets a little chilly. I mean, I love yeah. it, right? Because you it's don't suffer just, through it's it. It's like fashion, really. <laughs> yes. like, Let me wear my bufanda and my mittens. Yeah, but you don't really need it. Exactly. So, and I always talk about that culture shock. Before we get to that point, are you first generation college? Yes, also, yeah. So my parents didn't, I think my mom went to sixth grade in Mexico and my dad went to second grade, but really they just needed to help the fat. My mom did caretaking. Mi papa had to work, you know, to support the family. So yes, all of this is new for me. Like even graduating from high school is I'm the first generation. Do you have any champions or any teachers perhaps that were like, okay, Rocio, before you were Dr. Rocio, right? Were they like, there's more, there's more schooling that you have to do? Or was it your mom? Or how did that seem? It was really my mom. Mm. Yeah. And then when I went to college, I was fortunate to find a mentor, but really my mom, you know, she did such a great job with us. She's amazing. I always felt like she loved us unconditionally. I think what is especially important is nunca nos dio la responsabilidad de la casa, like that we have to clean, that we have to cook. Even though we were raised traditionally, she didn't impose like these very rigid gender roles on us. Wow. And I feel like that really saved us, you know, and really, you know, like I felt like she kind of gave us wings to fly, you know, right? you know, she always lovingly was very supportive and loving. I never felt as a girl, I never felt like I'm limited. I always Mm. felt like I could do anything that I want to. I love that. And I didn't know that that was uncommon for like, I didn't know that like some of my friends, especially, you know, friends that grew up traditionally, I didn't know that they didn't have that. I thought that everyone Mm. had that. When I learned that, you know, I was very grateful that my mom gave us that, but she was definite. She was like our champion, our cheerleader, everything. And she wanted, as soon as we, we learned about what college was, because I didn't know what that was growing up. Right. And when we learned what that was, she would always say, Mija, tu vas a ir. it was a non-negotiable. We were going to go to college. That's awesome. So now knowing what you know now, what do you think about your mom giving you that power? Where does she get that? 
Yeah. Well, she got it from my abuelita. So my abuelita, would, she said that she would always want her children to stay in school, pero ellos no se quedaron because vieron la necesidad de la familia. You know, like, how can mm. I possibly be in school when, like, we they grew up in poverty, you know? So they felt like it was selfish of them to be in school. But she always had that value of education. Mm. So empezó de ahí. The seed was planted for yes. generations. And we'll talk later about how trauma also gets passed on, right? Mm -hmm. Just like the good and the bad things. Okay, <laughs> so you go to college and then... Why did you decide to go to Missouri? I Out of was all fortunate. Places. I know. <laughs> Finally, I get to ask that question because everyone asked me that question. <laughs> I know. So in college, I was fortunate to have found, like we call it an academic family. Mm. And so my mentor, uh, Cubana, Cuban-American mentor, Dr. Jeanette Castellanos, and she was she's really like our academic mother. And she prepared us. You know, I didn't know what graduate school was. I didn't know what a PhD was. Like she taught me all these things. And so I went to Mizzou because it's one of the top programs. Mm. And it's also, um, we knew that we had to, and when I say we, it's like all the students that she mentored. We knew that we had to go out of state to get funded for our education. So like a lot of students stay in California And they end up, especially in psychology, they end up with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. Mm. It's, it's really ridiculous and so unjust. But I don't have, I have some student loan debt, but I don't have like The that. hundred thousands. <laughs> no, I couldn't do that. So that's why I chose to go outside. Okay. And how did you decide to go to grad school? Was it her that she was like, or was it because you studied psychology? It's because I studied psychology. So I knew that if I wanted to practice psychology, I needed a graduate degree. Mm. Yeah, which is so important for college students to know, or even high school students or any, you know, parents listening. If your children have a degree in psychology, they need a graduate degree, at least a master's to be able to practice in the field. Mm. Yeah, because I know a lot of people that their undergrad is in psych and it's like, they're a teller at a bank, you know? Yeah, yeah. Just can't do much with it. You go to grad school, you land in Missouri, and then you talk a lot about this, the academic world and how it's very colonized, I guess. Yeah, like I say it's colonial. <laughs> yes. It's colonial, yes. So how do you, at this point, still young Rocio, how do you navigate that world? Yeah, so I know things now that I didn't know then, which right. Right, we all learn in our journey. <laughs> At that time, you know, and what I know now also is what drew me to psychology is my abuelita and my mom that they, because they were kind of like informal counselors to the people around them. Like my mm. abuelita in her pueblo, my mom, everyone would come to her, you know, where we would live. Like they would go to the sala and she would have like her platicas with them. And they Oh would, my gosh. I know. And they would leave like so like. I'm at peace now, you know, so I call them like the informal therapist, you know, that's kind of in my blood. And I also now know that because I'm in an intuitive and now I can see all the things that I didn't know then that it's been showing up in my life. I just didn't know them. Mm. Por lo mismo, because we're colonized and we don't recognize those things, you know. 
But before I was awake to all of that, it was really, you know, I knew that education was this kind of like saving grace for our family. And I decided to go all the way to a PhD because my motivation was always to help my mom as a Mm. single mom. I wanted to do everything possible to help her because she had given so much to us. And so that Mm -hmm. was really, really my motivation. So I didn't really think of, you know, that it's a colonial field and all those things. I, I awakened to that, yeah, when I was a professor, you know. But at the time, it was just like, this is what I need to do. And nothing is going to stop me because I'm going to help my mom. Mm. Did you have any limiting beliefs as you were in your college journey? As you were I studying? Not, no. Really? And so I think that I always had support. So how I was able to navigate it is I always had support. Mm. From, you know, Dr. Castellanos, which is, you know, my academic mother or academic family. Mizzou was a very supportive program. I still have professors that I'm in contact with now. And I have friends that I did the PhD program with. And so I've been blessed que siempre fue a supportive environment that I was in. And I didn't have any limiting beliefs. Like I kind of almost wish I had that, Rocio, (laughs) because there was no doubt in my mind ever. I was homesick sometimes, of course. Right. But there was no way that anything was going to stop me. And my motivation was my mom, you know. Mm, That's awesome. So... Tell us about that time because now you're Dr. Rocio and you are a professor and you're pregnant and you have a child. Things happen that your life gets shifted. Mm-hmm. What happened? So let me just backtrack a little bit. To Perfect. Say that. Yeah. <laughs> I graduated in 2008. And when you have a PhD in any psychology field, you have to do an internship a year where you see all clients. And after that year, I had to decide, do I want to be a therapist or do I want to be a professor? Mm. And I chose a professor because I couldn't set boundaries with clients. And I also felt like psychology was really limiting. Like there was things that I wanted to say to clients. There's things that I saw and I wasn't able to because of the quote unquote rules of the field. Mm, and because so, of the board. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so now I know like that was like the intuitive in me wanting to like come out, you know. Okay. But I felt very constrained and I couldn't set boundaries. So I chose being a professor. I said, okay, I can teach and I can set boundaries and, and this will be a little healthier for me. And that didn't turn out to be the case. You know, I was a professor for 10 years and I really loved it. My favorite part was like being with the students, Mm. of course. And I worked at a HSI, which is a Hispanic serving institution. Most of the students were first generation like me. So like I felt like I could really be of service to them. Mm. But the field itself, the university itself, it's very colonial. It can be a very toxic culture. And I worked in a toxic work environment. So eventually that made me very sick. And for two years before I became pregnant, I lived in daily pain. Like I had daily migraines. And I, yeah, my body, it was like my body was rejecting this environment. And I didn't even think to leave it because I've worked my whole life for this. How am I going to leave this? And so I can't even believe now when I think back to that time that I, that two years, every single day I was in pain. 
you know? That's crazy. And, and so many people live that way. Yes. And we think it's normal. Like I thought it was normal. Right. And I just became accustomed to the pain. Mm. And I didn't even know what it was like to live without pain. Like it was just part of the deal. Wow. Which is horrible. And you're right. So many people kind of surrender. Yes. To living in that pain. So you were in this pain. And I became pregnant in 2015. And then the pain became worse. (gasps) I know. And so I had to take a leave. So I took a medical leave. I had my child in the summer of 2016. During all of that time is probably the worst, the most beautiful time because I was having my child, but also the most painful time physically because Mm. the physical pain became worse. I was bedridden. I couldn't leave my house. I couldn't, you know, light outside was painful. All of my house had, you know, blackout in the windows. Mm -hmm. I pretty much lived in darkness. Like any sense or smells, you know, it was very triggering. So me and my husband, like we didn't have a social life. It was just me really surviving, you know. It was a hard time. Was Was there a medical explanation for that? I developed chronic migraine and severe chronic migraine. And it became worse because of the hormones during pregnancy, you know, increased the pain. Wow. And you can't take medicine. Yeah. So it, it was, yeah, it was really, really a hard time. And my birth was traumatic. I've healed from that. So all of this, you know, at the time, like it just felt it was hard. But looking Mm -hmm. back now, I know that it was a spiritual awakening for me. Once I had my child, like everything that I valued before, like it was no longer important to me. Mm. And now I was a mother. And so I had to really take care of myself to be able to take care of this child. Before that, I was really, like they say, burning the candle at both ends. I was a workaholic. And I was taking care of everyone in my life, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, of course, I would end up in daily pain when I wasn't even taking care of myself. There were some times, like, I wouldn't even eat. Like, I didn't have time to eat at work. And I share that now, and a lot of people tell me, oh, my gosh, that's me, too, because you get so busy at work, you know? Yes. And so of now, I think, of course. No wonder you were sick. Yeah. Yes, of course. But again, it just becomes normal because the work environment, depending on where you work, they just demand more and more and more. And the expectation, you know? right? And your identity is so connected to that work. Like, I want to do good work. So I ended up, after I had my child, like, I really started to question everything in my life. I was no longer like giving emotionally to all the people in my life because I realized, like, I have to kind of keep this energy to myself. Because if I'm not well, I'm not going to be able to take care of my child, you know? Nice. And I had to learn that the hard way because there were some days I was in so much pain, I couldn't even take care of myself and I couldn't even take care of my child. Like I had to call my husband, you know, come home from work. I had to call my mom, you know, and that was really hard. And I was like, I can't live like this. And my child deserves better, you know, Mm. and I really had to like reach that bottom, you know, to really start to change my life. So when I became so ill that I couldn't even like get up some mornings, 
and my child, you know, needs to be fed and I couldn't even feed them. That's when I realized, you know what, I have to do everything possible to get well. Mm. I don't care what it is. I'm going to try everything, you know, because this this cannot be my life. Mm -hmm. And so I went back to work for one semester and I started to get well because I became vegan. I saw what the health. I don't even know how I came across that, but I watched that. And then I saw all of this. I never realized like how much what you eat affects, you know, yes. your well-being. And I said, okay, my husband and I said, we're going to do this, you know. He and was on board. Yes, he's totally on board because he wants me back. I'm right. suffering too, you know, and he was worried about me. And we became vegan overnight. I like, see, cold turkey. <laughs> yes, I know. I tell people like maybe for you, it's going to take some time and that's okay. But that was us, you know. I mean, you needed that switch. Yeah. So we totally overnight switch. There was a huge learning curve. Like, what do you eat for breakfast if you right. don't eat eggs and, you know, milk? And, you know, so it was a huge learning curve. I think a month or two after that, I became alkaline vegan, which is like the doctor. Yeah. And that is ultimately what started to make the change. I went back to work for a semester and then I started to become unwell again, you know, because so it was the food, but also the environment that I was in. Your body was giving you warning signs. Yes. Even though I felt so ashamed almost that I had to take a leave, I just did it because I was like, I need to be well and I need to take care of my child. And I ended up being on medical leave for two years. Okay. Yeah, because I physically could not do any more than just taking care of my child. And that time was also, it was almost like an ego death for me. Mm. And during that time, they fired me. That okay. Was, yeah, that was, I cried and cried and cried and cried, you know. Because when I was a professor, I earned tenure, which means that you have a lifelong appointment. And it's funny because once I earned tenure, that was in 2014. It's almost like my body like said, okay, we're safe. And it just kind of gave out, you know? Wow. It, it said like, I, you've abused me, you know, for so long. I can't take this. We're anymore. done. <gasps> yes. So during that medical leave, they fired me, which was a huge shock to me. I thought like Unexpected, I have a right? appointment, they're never going to fire me. But it turns out that, you know, of course you, they only care about you if you're going to get work out of you, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was my dark night of the soul moment. It's like, who am I if I'm not a professor? Right. Like, and I can't now, I don't even know if I'm ever going to work. And that was so important to me to be able to like do something or serve others. And so I just cried so much. And I even apologized to my husband and to my mom, because at the time, the money that I was making, we needed that right. you know, for our household. I needed that money to take care of my mom financially. And so it was really painful. Like my whole world was falling apart. So what did you do? I just cried. I <laughs> grieved. I grieved. And I finally surrendered to it. You mm. know, I think when I apologized to my mom and I, you know, it's a yanto where you can't even talk. Like right. that's how I was apologizing to her because I felt so like I had let her down. Mm, really. The you guilt. Know? Yeah. 
and I did the same with my husband and, and they were just shocked. Like, I can't believe you're apologizing to us. We just want you to be well, you right, know? Right, right. And so I think when my mom told me, she kind of said like, Mija, don't even worry about that. Like, do, you know, enfócate en ti, en tu bebé, like take care of yourself. Mm. I almost needed that to just kind of let go. Mm-hmm. And so then when I received almost that from her, that blessing, I just surrendered to the experience. And although, you know, I was still very disappointed, sad, mad that I was fired, you know, it almost was like a relief. Mm-hmm. Like for the first time in my life, I can just be, I don't have to do anything. Right. And then I started to see the blessing in this. You know what? I can focus on me and I can take care of my child. I don't have to leave my child in someone else's hands. Like I get to raise them, you know? Mm. And so it was through my child that I started to have that spiritual awakening and that I started to see the gift in my life falling apart. That's awesome. Oh my gosh. So what's the next step that you take? So I was really healing, focusing on my healing. I left a toxic work environment. I changed the way I ate. I was, you know, I started to do more connected to my spirituality. How did that Um, happen? Because as an academic, isn't that something that's like so far removed from? Yeah. And it's always kind of been a part of me. Right. And so it it was almost like this secret that I had. Yes. Like I have to hide this part of me because my, you know, my colleagues are going to think I'm, you know, what's wrong with me or who am I, you know? (laughs) So it was always like this hidden part of me, but it just started to come out more, you know? And again, like when I became a mother and when I left that environment, it was just like all these things that I was hiding in me started to grow and it started to come out. They were like, okay, that is dying. This is your rebirth. Like this is who you really are. Like this is what you needed to come back to. Nice. You basically released like shedding, yeah. yeah. And then yeah. open up space for the new one. Yeah. Or for the one that's always been there that was kind of like hiding with all the stuff. mm -hmm, With all those layers. Yeah. So I just really focused on my health and being a mom. And I'm so grateful for that. My child is now three and a half. And I just, even though I was unwell, once I started to get healthier, it's like, I am so grateful. Like, thank you, creator, for getting me fired. You know, I say like spirit and ancestors moved me out of that by way of illness. Like they forced me out of there because I would have stayed there even though Mm -hmm. I was in pain. Like that's the thing that is so wild. It's like I was living in daily pain for two years, but I would have stayed there for like 40 more years in pain, you know, totally, because I was so invested in that. And it was my identity. Is that part of the colonial mentality? Mm -hmm. Because we seek external validation. We don't. And that's what I had to learn to do, like not to look for others approval, not to define myself by outside sources. Right. We learn that through schooling, through colonialism, that we're not worth anything unless we're doing or unless we're attached to something. You know, we have to be defined by others. So absolutely, that's a part of it. And 
So let's talk about colonialism because I feel like it's a word that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, especially mm-hmm. white people, because mm-hmm. they, what I feel is that there's some guilt in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they feel that you're calling them human that's in front of you out when it's not necessarily that way, right? So let's define what that means first. Yes. And I love that you said it makes people uncomfortable because I think that's like a good introduction for people. <laughs> like it even makes a lot of Latinx folks uncomfortable. For sure. You know? Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I tell people like I exist at the intersections of mental health, of spirituality and decolonial work. Mm. And sometimes like it feel like I tell people like I kind of feel like a unicorn, you know, because they don't like fit sometimes. And people like think like, if you're spiritual, you can't be decolonial, you know, and I feel like they're so interconnected for me, like they can't exist without the other. So colonialism really is the whole world has experienced colonialism, right? Mm. Black indigenous people of color have been colonized by Europeans. And when we look at Latinx folks, they've been colonized by more specifically the Spaniards, right? And when we say colonized, that means that they took our land, they took our even healing, our medicine, our science, our women, you know, by Mm -hmm. way of force. And they did this because they believed that they were superior and that we were inferior. And they almost saw this as like, this was a way for the world to progress. You know, Mm. this is how we make the world better. And so that was like a good excuse for them that kind of relieved them of like all this violence and genocide that they created. But it's really, you know, I think what I want folks to know is that this is a part of our history, you know, world history that we often don't talk about. And even though it's a part of, you know, history or history, it still affects us today. Totally. And this trauma that we, it's generation, I mean, there's been studies, right, that show Mm -hmm. that we carry it generations through generations. One thing that I notice all the time, and, and you'll back me up on this. Once you start doing the healing work, you see people and you're like, oof, there's some work that needs to be done there. But it's not like to me, it's not my job to do it. So we just kind of like treat people with grace and kindness. Why do people get uncomfortable with it? I treat white folks and folks of color, you know, differently when answering that question. White folks, I think it's because of that guilt, right? Mm. Because of the guilt of them. They are the, you know, their lineage descendants of the colonizer, right? But I think, and so some of that guilt, like they have to feel. Some of that guilt they have to feel to move them to responsibility, to action, to right the wrongs, and to start doing social justice work. So I don't know that all of that guilt is bad, right? Like you almost have to embrace it as a white person for you to begin your healing. You have to be able to face that. And then to not be stuck in that guilt, right? Now that I'm aware of this, now that I'm awake to this, how can I use this to be an ally, to support people. And for white folks, it's not about, you know, you, you, it's about you amplifying the voices of Black Indigenous people of color, you funneling your monies to Black Indigenous people of color, their businesses, their organizations, their work, 
those are very tangible, easy ways Mm. that you can support them, but it makes them uncomfortable because of that guilt. Like they feel it's a personal attack, you know? And when we talk about colonialism, it's a system, you know, it's beyond the individual people. Yes, individual people have to take responsibility, but when we name colonialism, like we're naming the system, the world that we live in. And so once you get out of like feeling personally attacked, you can begin to make progress. Like it's it's about you, but it's really not about you, right? It's right. Like you need the world's to bigger than you. <laughs> yes. And then for Black Indigenous people of color, why does it make them uncomfortable? Because, you know, and I think for, and I'll focus on Latinx folks specifically, because that's my culture. I think it makes them uncomfortable because we grew up with it. Mm. You know, mm. it's like you start to realize like, oh my gosh, you know, like, yes, for example, we have viewed Spaniards as being, or, or those que son blancos have lighter skin. We did view them as like better, as more beautiful, you know, we did view indigenous folks as being inferior. Like there was a lot of negativity around that. So we also, I think, start to feel that guilt. We were raised with that. Totally. And you know, it's something for me being someone who grew up in Mexico City. Also, yo vengo de México, México. You know, Mm -hmm. I feel like I have experienced both cultures and life in the U.S. as a brown person is more awakened, I feel Mm -hmm. like, than when you're down there. And I Mm -hmm. see it still, right? Mm -hmm. I was talking to a friend of mine recently and she was telling me how, and it's kind of in my family too, her mom's side, it's more indigenous and her dad's side is more Spanish. And Mm -hmm. so when her dad married her mom, his dad's family was furious Mm. because it was going to go down the scale right and so that I know and I'm like ah and it's so ingrained it's so Mm -hmm. in us Mm -hmm. that these conversations are so normalized Mm -hmm. the classism is real Mm -hmm. which is insane and so I see that a lot more when I've had conversations with people that grew up in Latin America, it's more normalized. Here in the U.S., people are m- much more awake to that. And even the yes. term, right? Mm-hmm. Hispano, mm-hmm. Hispanic. Here in the U.S., it's like, ah! mm-hmm. more so in California, where you go down to South America and it's still, people are still embracing that. Right. Yeah. Why do you think that happens? One of the things I want to say about colonialism amongst Black Indigenous people of color, and really everyone, is that when we start talking about these things, I think it's important to come from a place of love and compassion that Mm. we have all been colonized, you know, and that those of us that are awake, like we need to remember that there was a time that we didn't know these things. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to help other people awaken if we are being judgmental. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so I think that is so important because in a lot of like decolonial world, especially on social media, it can be so toxic and so negative and so judgmental. And I feel like that's not going to get us to healing and that's not going to get us to liberation. 100%. Yeah. And so when we sort of, especially, you know, amongst our families, if we want to start having these conversations, we need to do it in a gentle way almost, you know, 
especially for our families that grew up, you know, in Mexico or Latin America, like we are like, it's this huge paradigm shift that we're asking them to make, you know, we're really opening up this whole, you know, world to them and really almost like tearing down the world that they grew up in. Mm. And so that's going to be an uncomfortable process for them, you know? And so we have to have, you know, for me, it's like always coming from a place of compassion and patience and love, you know, from, I say decolonizing is an act of love for our ancestors, of love for ourselves, for our families that we want, we want, and we deserve to be free and healed from these things. Totally. I love that so much. And for example, when you were saying this, I I was thinking about conversations because I have friends in Mexico City Mm -hmm. that I grew up with. And then I have friends here in the U.S. And a lot of my friends in the U.S., they're much more indigenous just Mm -hmm. because they come from smaller states in Mexico, right? And my friends in Mexico City, they, I have a ton of span. I mean, I'm 40% Spanish, I don't know, some European. Mm -hmm. And so the conversations that are had with folks in Mexico City are, they have this like, they feel more. Yeah, superior. Yes, superiority. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I struggle with a lot because Mm -hmm. to me, a human is a human, right? However, like you said, you have to be patient with them because Mm -hmm. I do remember how I grew up and the history books that we were read and we are taught about classism and we like I had a muchacha that cleaned my hand and she still lives with us Mm. in Mexico City, right? Mm. And I treat her like the human she is. However, not everyone does. And so Mm. it's this like parallel and I don't even know why I'm sharing this because Mm -hmm. I'm related to the episode, but it's just coming out, you know? Yeah. So I think, you know, thank you for sharing this because And this goes back to why colonialism makes people uncomfortable is because for colonialism to work, right? So they took us by force, but then for it to continue to work in terms of them keeping power over us, they had to convince some of us that we were better than others. And Mm. particularly those that were quote unquote mestizo, right? Or had lighter skin they had to convince you that you were better so that you would go along with this system, right? And so that continued for hundreds of years, right? And so people have invested in that system. I am better than Black and Indigenous people, right? And so then when you start to realize like, oh my gosh, I bought into that, right? right? (laughs) Then that's where all of that guilt and all, so that's why people get uncomfortable. Totally. Because they bought into it and it was unconscious. Right. we We didn't know any better. But once we know better, like now we have to start undoing all of this and more specific, like you have to undo it in yourself first to be able to like have these conversations with other people, to have compassion for other people. Like, You can't have compassion for other people if you're still judging yourself, you know, Mm -hmm. for for these things. So it's work that needs to start with you, deep work that needs to start with you. The unlearning begins, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's something that I I definitely have experienced. And and I think of, for example, a a recent conversation that I had with friends from Mexico City, and they were talking about the, the movie Roma. Mm-hmm. Right. And they didn't understand why Roma was such a hit in the US. Because in Mexico, it was like, I mean, cool, it's squat on, 
you know, it's it's just another Guaron movie. Like, it's fine. Yeah. And because the life is similar. Like, he grew up with this muchacha. And, you know, that's just the life, right? And so I was like... So the people that I was having this conversation with, they were like, well, it's just that's the way they, we grew up. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yes. And what happened in the U.S. is that a lot of women could finally identify with Cleo, with an mm-hmm. indigenous woman on TV. That's the difference. And because we don't have that, mm-hmm. you know, it was a representation. Mm-hmm. Correct. Mm-hmm. And so it was hard for me to explain this to them. That mm-hmm. why it was such an important movie for people in the U.S. Mm-hmm. where it was not really for people in Mexico, where yeah. it could have allowed some awakening, I think, mm-hmm. <laughs> if people could see a little deeper. But it's I don't know. I don't know if they're ready. And yeah, and maybe it wasn't a big deal because you know they don't put value on indigenous life yet. Correct. Whereas, like you said, here in the U.S., we do have more of that racial consciousness and more of that like decolonial consciousness. And why do you think in the U.S. is more so than in other countries? That's such a good question. <laughs> it's, you know, and it's hard. Sometimes it's hard for me because I, you know, I was born and raised here and I would visit in Mexico, you know, with my family. And so it's sometimes hard. You know, I don't have that perspective of living there. So I just want to like share that, that my perspective is from a Chicana, Mexicana, you know, that was born and raised here in the U.S. But I feel like in Mexico, it's almost more oppressive. Like here in the U.S., we've had like civil rights movements. And to some extent that happened in Mexico, but it was so, you know, like the students that spoke out were killed. You know, it was much more violent in Mexico. Women's still almost don't have rights, you know, LGBTQI folks don't have rights in Mexico, like, you know, there it's becoming, you know, maybe more accepted. And there are maybe pockets in Mexico where they do feel more, you know, there is more liberation. But as a whole, in Mexico, you know, women are still very oppressed. You know, they don't have the same liberties that they have here in the U.S. There's places in Mexico where women are killed and are murdered and raped on the regular, you know. Mm-hmm. so And all over Latin America. Yes, all over. And the same for LGBTQI folks, you mm. know. And so that violence silences you know, that violence silences women, that violence silences the LGBTQI community. It's like the colonial patriarchy there is so violent and and so strong almost. Mm. Even though like Mexico, you know, there was Mexican Independence Day, right, that we were liberated from Spain. The truth is that we were never, we were never free from them. Agreed. You know, wealthy Spaniards just stayed in Mexico and kept the control. And they are still in control now, right? The class difference from the very wealthy to the majority of people that are poor, like still exists. Mm-hmm. So that colonial patriarchy never left. 100%. And you still see it. I mean, you still see it. And one of my biggest rants all the time, every time I go to Mexico now, is all billboards and all advertisement, the telenovelas, I mean, this is a known fact, right? They're mm-hmm. all white passing folks. Mm-hmm. Right. 
and the indigenous people or the more morenitos, they're lower class folks. That's mm-hmm. how people are represented. And it's so annoying. Yeah. And even like, I wouldn't even like some of them are white passing on the novelas and some of them are just are white. Right. Like, some of them are Russian and like <laughs> yes. they just, I don't, you know, some of them like immigrated to Mexico because to, like Mexico is like the hub for novelas for the world. Right. Or they're the descendants of the colonizers that stayed here. And then we grow up watching these novelas and thinking like this is beautiful and this is normal, you know. That's not even who we come from, you know. Right. So that that's part of like the colonization still. Totally. And it's in our brain. Mm -hmm. And it's so much in our brain that a lot of times we don't even realize, right? Like I have to catch myself with some thoughts sometimes and I'm like what the heck Pam get that out Mm -hmm. and I was having this conversation the other day with someone people always tell me like how did you grow up in Mexico City and have no accent and I always say well because my mom was made fun of so much that I promised myself that I wasn't going to let people make fun of my accent and Mm -hmm. people still you know kind of talk about but that's how trauma like and then I was having this conversation about European accents and how they're much more accepted Whereas you hear a brown person's accent and people get frustrated or even, you know, telemarketing calls. And if the person sounds that they're from India, it's like, oh my gosh. But Mm -hmm. if you get a French accent, it's so sexy or it's a whatever, right? And it's something so subtle, Mm -hmm. but it's part of the colonial brain. Absolutely. Yeah. We view those as being like romantic, even (laughs) like all of those things. Right. But then, you know, with black indigenous, you know, folks of color, like we're almost trained to be like angry. Right. Like, why aren't you speaking English and why aren't you speaking English? Well, you know, I just want people to think about that. Like, that's the colonizer. Right. The colonizer taught us to think that way. So that brings us to like colonial mentality. You know, because people think when you think of colonialism, it's something in the past. Mm. But we are, you know, with all that we're, we've talked about so far, it's things that still are happening now. That's the colonial mentality is that we have inherited these colonial ideas and colonial mentality. The, the definition is when you as a black indigenous person of color view yourself as inferior and when you view, you know, the colonizer or Europeans as superior. Like that's all that we've been talking about, Mm -hmm. right? In my work, what I do is like, I extend that, you know, because that's what academia has taught us colonial mentality is. But I think that you can have pride as a black indigenous person of color and still have a colonial mentality. Ooh, you know, I can be a proud Chicana and I have pride in my people and my history, but there are still parts of me that I view as inferior. I still have low self-worth. Yeah. You know, I experience success and I feel like I'm unworthy of it or I still seek for external validation. Right from, from mm-hmm. other people. I still have a hard time setting boundaries. I don't do self-care because the colonizer taught me to just serve and to not just exist for myself. 
Yes. (laughs) So good. So good. (laughs) Yeah. And scarcity, right? Like we buy it. We think that, and that's part of the, a huge part of the colonial mentality. Like there, I can only experience so much success and that I have to feel guilty for my success, you know, and that, you know, to want abundance, financial abundance makes me a sellout, right? Mm. And And I have to experience survivor's guilt about all of that, right? So all of that fear, all of that doubt, like that was placed in us by the colonizer. That's the colonial mentality. I think it's those mental shackles that they placed on us. Oh my gosh. I love it. I agree 100%. And this is something that I always talk to my other Latina friends or Latinx that for white women is so easy to manifest things. Mm-hmm. And that manifesting word is like such a buzz thing, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I have friends that they're like, yeah, $10,000. I'm going to ma- manifest $10,000. It's going to happen. And for women of color, it's so much harder because we yeah. have to dismantle so many things before we get to that point where we can just say, come to me, right? Yes. That's what the colonizer wanted, right? you know? Like they wanted to keep us in fear and scarcity so they can control us. Mm. You know, so they don't want us. And then, so this is a thing, it's such a nuanced conversation because the colonizer even taught us that like to want these things makes us like white, like want to be white, right? Yes. And then that's the conversation that we have amongst our Black Indigenous communities, right? Right. Like, oh, you want success. Oh, now you want to be like the white people or like right. now you want abundance, you're selling out, you know? And these are things that we are worthy of as well. Like I I want you to like divest from that. Abundance is not a white thing. Mm. That's why I think decolonizing is so important because you won't get it unless you realize it's connected to colonialism. You're not inferior. You are worthy of this too, you know, and that they want you to believe that you're not worthy of it. And they want you to be to stay stuck in just surviving and just thinking about your oppression and being angry about your oppression and fighting against the oppression, you know? Yes. <laughs> that is necessary. We do need to fight, but we also have to make space for our wellness, for our healing and our liberation. I love that. So much because I think 100% I see it all the time, right? And I have to unfollow some accounts that are, I just feel the anger and I'm like, look, I'm with you. Let's fight Mm -hmm. together. Pero we deserve this también, you know? And so it's, yes, but it's hard because Mm -hmm. a lot of times, for example, I get shamed a lot because I charge people, you don't want to help people, right? And I'm like, yes, but I need to eat. (laughs) Yes, let's talk about that because that's a big part of it, you know? And so like, I just want to say to like the anger that is valid, Mm -hmm. you know, when black indigenous people of color feel angry for the oppression that they experience for the racism, for the sexism, like that is valid. And that's why I think like, for me, the work that I do, it's like to uncover all of that, to get you to a place where you can be well, where you can be mentally healthy. where you can begin to experience your spirituality, you know, but like we need to get all of that muck out first, you know? Right. So for me, like, I just want to say that to the folks listening, like that is valid, but I don't want you to stay stuck in that. 
Because yes. when you stay stuck in that, you're doing exactly what the colonizer wants. Mm, yes. They, they tortured you. They did all this to our ancestors. They're doing all of this now so that we are so preoccupied with just surviving and fighting that we don't elevate. So work on that. Make space for your anger and all of that and fight. We need to fight together. Absolutely. I, I believe in social justice, but don't stay stuck in that. You know, make room for your abundance, make room for dreaming, make room for your joy. I always say like you deserve to have joy even while you're fighting against right. And back to the abundance piece, like there's so many women of color that I work with that are experiencing what you have said, like that judgment, especially I think from activists, you know, mm. of like, why are you charging for your work? And, and why don't you just give it away? You know, and the first thing I want to say is that the majority of women of color, like we already give away a lot of our work. Yes. You know, so yes. first, let's start there that we're already giving it away. We're probably going to continue to do that because those are our values. Mm. You know, like, you know, I know that that is part of you, like, all the people that are drawn to me, like these are their values. So they're going to continue to do these things, but we cannot continue. And this is why I work with women of color. And this is tied to colonial mentality. We cannot continue to exist in that legacy of servitude, you know? Mm. And the reason you expect us to work for free is because the colonizer taught you that that's what we should be doing. Yes. Yes. And so when we begin to value ourselves and our work enough to charge for it, charge for it based on the time and energy we put into that work, you know, that is a part of our liberation. Mm. You know, because we cannot be liberated if like we're broke. Right. You know, right. if we're hungry, like that is not something that should be idealized. Like that you know, we're, and we're not going to create these massive movements of healing and liberation if we don't have money, the energy that we need in this modern world, you know. And so for me, like I've, I've been talking about this a lot lately on my Instagram, because this is work that I'm doing myself. It's just like so deep in us that we feel guilty for charging for our work. And that's colonial trauma. Oh, for sure. I've done a lot of work around this, a lot, like a lot, <laughs> like mm -hmm. sweat, yeah. tears and blood. <laughs> yes, and it's, it's still, hard. and it still comes up, right? Yes. Yes. Like it's to so me, hard. so hard. Like to me, for example, I, and I would say, because I come from a family that we, we were not rich by any means, pero teníamos muchacha que limpiaba, you know? So to an extent you would say that maybe my trauma is not just as, as much as if I was 100% indigenous, maybe, mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And I still face a lot of, when I have with white men clients, they're very triggering, mm -hmm. very triggering. Porque me regatean, you know, they try to negotiate my price. And I'm oh like, and I have to like really remind myself and be like, okay, do it for your grandma, do it for your mom. <laughs> yes, <laughs> stand up for them. Yes. So yeah, you know, those of us that like for me, I identify as Chicana indigenous. But I, you know, for in indigenous folks, you know, that are brown skin, I'm lighter skin, you know, mm -hmm. they're, of course, going to experience marginalization mm -hmm. or discrimination. We as lighter skin Latinx folks like we are going to have more privilege, you know. So, yes, we need to acknowledge that. And at the same time, our experience is still valid, you know, right. like we have to make space for both of them. 
But yeah, this work, especially the financial piece, I feel like it's one of the hardest in terms of colonial mentality for women of color. It's so very hard. Why do you think so? It's because our ancestral mothers were forced to work for free mm. and all nothing, you know, like they were dehumanized. You know, that's how colonization started is that they raped our ancestral mothers, mm -hmm. you know? So if we just even think about that, like they were not full human beings in the eye of the colonizer. And so that is deep seated trauma, colonial trauma that we are still trying to heal and undo from. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so like whenever something feels so difficult, like it's it's like you're unearthing something and you have to continue, continue to, to work on it. That's for me, that's a sign of colonial trauma. Mm. That you are not just healing this for you in your lifetime, but you are healing this for the mothers before you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have hella healing to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's a journey, you know, like that's yes. what I tell the folks that I work with, the folks on Instagram, like I teach some of these things to you all. I facilitate this healing, but I'm on the journey too. I'm right there with you. And Maybe mm, I'm mm, like a couple of steps ahead and have more tools, but I'm there with you. We're all in this together. You know, the reason why this is coming up, bubbling up for us is because I believe this is the time that our ancestors prayed for. Yes. We, we are the people that they prayed for, you know, <laughs> and I shared a couple of days ago, I think, or maybe yesterday it was that I had this vision of our ancestral mothers praying, you know, mm. and praying for a time when their pain and their suffering would end and that they were okay if they wouldn't see it in their own lifetime, as long as it came to be. And I feel oh like now is that time. We are those people they pray. Mm, oh my gosh. That's so good. You know, and when that vision came to me, I was just crying, you know, like that made me cry because I saw them, I felt them. And so many people really resonated with that message. And I think it's because we all feel that calling, you know. Mm -hmm. I love it. Oh my gosh. Dr. Rocio, we can just sit here and talk about this all day, but I, know. I want to be conscious of your time. Okay. Tell us where people can find you. So folks can find me on Instagram at Dr. Rosales Mesa. I am also on Facebook, my Facebook business page under the same. And I'm on Patreon. Mm -hmm. I have a sacred space for women of color there. And so much beautiful work is happening there. It's turned into like something I never even, you know, myself imagined. If folks, you know, really are drawn to my work and want to receive guidance and coaching from me, that is where I do that. And I wanted to do it through Patreon to make it accessible to folks. Mm -hmm. And I also do Facebook Lives. That it's what I call sort of mini coaching on these things. You know, you can access that for free. And then I'm in the works of, of developing and launching some programs and some courses soon. For those folks that are wanting more, I finally accepted that, yes, okay, <laughs> we, we need to do more around this work and that it needs to be sustainable. Correct. And I see this work like going beyond me. Like I always tell people like, I can't do this on my own. I need all of you all to take this up and, and do this as well. You know, we need all of us and we do this all of collectively. And I see this work continuing even when I've left 
you know, mm. earth, you know, like I want this to continue because I so believe in our collective healing and liberation. So 100%. I agree 100%. I'm all about this. I'm all about what you do. Because the more I heal, I, I notice that my mom heals. Yes, yes. You know, and I notice my grandma heals. And so one thing that I tell people all the time it, when people complain about their family, because, you know, it's the, the common complaint, <laughs> is do you do your work. Yes. It's like a ripple effect, right? Yes. Yes. It starts there, you know, and I think some of us, like we feel guilty, like it's selfish mm. to start with me, but like you need to undo those mental, emotional, energetic blocks in yourself to then transmit that energy to the people around you. It's even in just your being that healing, that healing energy will be transmitted to the people around you. Totally. Even yeah. my mom, when I stopped eating meat, my mom was like, does look on, you know, and, then, and now she doesn't eat meat. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> I don't have to too. say anything. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's so awesome. Absolutely. It starts with you. Oh my gosh. This was awesome. Thank you so much for all your knowledge, for always sharing and all your truth bombs all the time. I love reading <laughs> them. They're awesome. Thank, thank you for doing this work for yes, all of us. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you for having me. And thank you for all the work that you're doing and creating this platform for these important conversations for our community. This is so needed. So I see you. I honor you. I appreciate you. And I love you. Thank you. The same goes to you. Dr. Rocio, do you have a remedio? So my remedio, like go-to in our family was always manzanilla, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, té de manzanilla, chamomile, and hierbabuena. Like that is always what I remember, (laughs) you know. Hierbabuena manzanilla. Yes, my mom would say, See, those, if the babies were crying, les dabas poquita hierbabuena, then they would be okay, you know. So it's always like plants for us, you know, and herbs. Yes. Mm-hmm. Do you have a quote or a mantra that you live by? The main one that comes to mind is first poco a poco, which is like mm. little by little. And for me, that's so helpful as a recovering perfectionist, you know, <laughs> and is almost like type A that I was before. It's like, and even with your healing, like poco a poco, you know, and the second one is just yes. to really yes, surrender, yes. like surrender. Whenever I'm struggling, whenever I'm having a hard time, surrender. And that almost, I even like just breathe and just settle in to, to whatever I'm experiencing. And I know that there's a lesson, there's some healing in that that I need. And that just helps me settle. Oh my gosh. So good. So good. Okay. I don't want to keep asking questions because we can just keep going, but thank you so much for your time, for being here, for existing and sharing all the things. Stay shining. (laughs) All right, listeners, what do you think about Dr. Rocio? I am sure your mind is now going into a lot of different directions, reflecting back at your colonial thinking, at how you were raised, and also looking forward to how you're going to liberate yourself from these thoughts and this mentality that we can't help it. That's how we've been raised. I absolutely love Dr. Rocio and her work. And because she's so amazing, she's agreed to come back to the show and talk about decolonizing your spirituality. We're going to have one full episode only on that. I believe that topic alone deserves its own episode. So stay tuned for that interview because I cannot wait, especially because we are moving into a direction where we are getting more and more spiritual or more open. I feel like we've always had the spiritual side of us, especially people of color. We 
have always had this, ¿cómo se dice? Superstitions and things. Those were spiritual things. All the remedios that I've always asked you from, everyone has them. Every single one of my guests. So we've had the spirituality within us. It's just the way that it's been presented to us and how we've believed that it exists. So I'm so excited. I'm so excited for this episode. Stay tuned. I cannot wait. And now, let me talk about Power Sisters. I am opening up the program so you can find your Power Sister. You will get monthly coaching calls with me. We will live in an online platform. It's really cool. It's a standalone place. It's not a Facebook group. Because I am aware that I work with recovering procrastinators and social media platforms are really distracting. So I wanted to make sure that we had our own space in the world where there weren't that many distractions other than the work that we're doing. <laughs> so this is going to be the place where you are going to hold each other accountable. You're going to help each other achieve and reach your goals and intentions. I have two programs available and this is where people get the most confused. One is for power sisters who are looking to get started with productivity. They are looking to recover from procrastination and in the beginning stages of the recovery. This is a place where we will have the monthly calls and we will facilitate your power sister pairing as well as your meetings. And then the other program is the Junto or also known as a mastermind. And this one is for power sisters who have a project in mind. Maybe they're looking to start a Business. Maybe they're looking to grow a business and they are looking to have that additional extra support from like-minded individuals. I have been a part of different masterminds. I call them Junto because that is the first name that a mastermind was called. And it's, it's not in Spanish, but it's in Spanish. It sounds cool. And... The masterminds that I have been a part of have been great because you get to hear other business owners, other humans' perspectives that you get to hear also what they're dealing with. And that gives you some sense of relief a lot of times because you're like, you know what? I'm not alone. I'm not the only one that's going through this. So the Junto is great if you already have a project in mind that you want to work on and you're ready to invest in. And your business is mainly for business owners. To learn more about Power Sisters, head over to findmypowersister.com. And I cannot wait to start serving you. <laughs> Listeners, if you really, really love this episode, like, as much as I did, please share it with a friend. If you loved it, your friends will love it. You'll have something to talk about and you will change someone's life. I'm really excited. So go ahead and share it with someone. Another way to support the show is to leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes and or your podcast platform of choice, whichever that is. Sometimes people ask me, well, I listen on Stitcher. On Stitcher, you can leave reviews. Please, if you feel called, I appreciate every single one of you. So I will read the review of the week next week. Stay tuned for that. Don't forget to follow at Cafe Con Pan Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. I love it, love it, love it so much when you tag me on the episodes that you're listening to so I can repost you. I always repost you and we always have conversations after you've tagged me. Sometimes you don't want to talk. You just say, I just listened. <laughs> I always thank you from the bottom of my heart for sharing you listening sharing is caring. So I really, really appreciate you. Also, you can join our brand new exclusive community. It's completely free. It's stayshining.club. This is the place where we kind of go deeper into the conversation. I have really cool rewards in there. And then the people that are part of Power Sisters or my other courses, they get inside of groups. So we have different conversations within the community. But to join the main feed, it's completely free. 
stayshining.club. Listeners, thank you so much for hanging out with me today. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Rocio. I hope you loved it. Never, never forget to stay shining. Sabrosura, pati, que, que.